This is Dominic Preziosi, and you're listening to the Commonwealth Podcast. It's been about 10 days since the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis, and since that time, we've seen protests in hundreds of cities around the nation. Today, our assistant editor, Regina Munch, speaks with Father Brian Massingill, a theology professor at Fordham University and the author of Racial Justice and the Catholic Church. This is the Commonwealth Podcast. So I'm here with our assistant editor, Regina Munch. And Regina, you got to speak with Father Brian Massingale. I did. I heard him speak at the Los Angeles Religious Education Conference a couple years in a row, and he's a wonderful speaker. So I was very excited to have him on the podcast. And he's one of the best thinkers in the church right now, thinking about racism and the way that racism functions in our country and in the church. And one thing we talked about in this interview is how racism functions like a liturgy that it's allowed to continue when everyone plays their part. We also talked about the virtue of courage in the Christian tradition, and that courage is something we need right now as we think about the ways to fight racism. I'm really glad you got to speak with Father Massengale, and I'm really looking forward to hearing this interview. Thanks, Regina. Thank you. Father Brian, we're talking now as activists and protesters nationwide are demanding justice for George Floyd and seeking an end to systemic white supremacy. You wrote an article for National Catholic Reporter in which you say that Amy Cooper holds the key to understanding racism in the United States. What did you mean by this? Great question. Thank you. Let me tell you a bit about how that essay came to be. It was Pentecost weekend, and even though people call me a progressive Catholic, I'm still old school enough in my spirituality to believe in novenas. And I was having in the midst of the nine days of praying before Pentecost. And that Monday before Pentecost was when the the incident happened at Central Park, when Amy Cooper, a white woman, basically called the police on an African-American man, Christian Cooper, who, no relation, who simply asked her to comply with the Postal Park regulations and leash her dog. And she did indeed do so, saying that there was an African-American man who was threatening her. And that didn't receive as much publicity because that same day, that was when the murder of George Floyd took place in Minneapolis and the nation's attention fixated on that horrific outrage. And so that week as I was praying, I found I just could not pray. I couldn't, and I would be praying, there were tears that were falling. And I knew people wanted me to say something. I wanted to say something, but I didn't know what to say. And then it occurred to me that Amy Cooper held the key, that if we understand what happened in Central Park, it tells us a great deal about what we mean by white privilege, white supremacy, and why these more blatant outrages occur. We see a white woman who exemplified all of the unspoken assumptions of whiteness. Namely, she assumed that she would be presumed innocent. She assumed that the black man would be presumed guilty. She assumed that the police would back her up. 
She assumed that as a white woman, her lies would hold more credibility than his truth. She assumed that she would have the presumption of innocence. She assumed that he would have, he, the black man, would have a presumption of guilt. She assumed that the police would back her up. She assumed that his race would be a burden. And she assumed that she had the upper hand in the situation. She assumed that she could exploit deeply ingrained white fears of black men. And she assumed that she could keep these deeply ingrained white fears to keep a black man in his place. And it occurred to me that she knew exactly what she was doing. That's why she did what she did. But also that we all know what she was doing. That every one of us could look at that situation and understand exactly what was going on. And that's the problem. That whether we want to it or admit it or not, we all know how race functions in America. And race functions in America in a way that benefits white people. And that's a terrible assumption. I mean, most white people don't want to admit it, but if we don't admit that, then Amy Cooper's actions don't make any sense. And so whether we want to admit it or not, we could all read that situation. And once we read that situation, then we understand the story of race in America. And the story of race in America is that race functions in a way that benefits white people in a way that it burdens people of color and especially black people. And that systemic advantage, that awareness that most white Americans have, even if they don't want to admit it, that they would never want to be black in America, tells us a great deal about what is going on in America and the way forward. And the way forward is that we need to be honest about the centuries-old accumulations of the benefits of whiteness so that it's easier to be white, that white makes life easier than it is to be a person of color. And that until we have the courage to face that reality and to name it explicitly, then we're always going to have these explosions and eruptions of protest, but we will never have the courage and the honesty to get to the core of the issue and to deal with the systemic ways in which inequality works in America. You've compared the way that racism functions to a liturgy. How does that work? I got that insight from a sociologist named Joe Fegan, and he says that just as in a liturgy, you have an officiant, what we call a celebrant or presider, you have acolytes, and you have a congregation. In racism, you can say that racism is like a liturgy. You have officiants, which are people who 
are the obvious perpetrators of, of racial injustice. They're the people who are telling awful jokes. They're the people who pass policies in, in, that would disadvantage persons of color. For example, we have an unequal distribution of educational resources. Then you have the acolytes. And the acolytes are, in a sense, the enablers. The enablers are those who carry out those policies. The enablers are those who give approval to the heinous actions that are going on. But then you have the congregation. And the congregation are the bystanders. They're the people who see what's going on, who know what's going on, but who take no action to intervene. And the way I talk about the congregation, the bystanders in terms of racism and racial injustice, I ask people to think about going to their family meal at Christmas or Thanksgiving. And you have the family member who tells a racist joke or who says racist things. And what bystanders or the congregation, what they would often do during that situation, they would say things like, well, you know, um, your grandfather comes from a different generation. Or that's just the way your aunt was raised. Or yeah, I know it's a terrible thing that he said, but deep down, he's a really good person. Or, well, you can't choose your family and we, we just get through it. It's only once a year. And what bystanders do when they say these things is that they're teaching the, the onlookers a very important message. They're saying that doing racist things is okay because white people will let you get away with it. And what we do, we create safe spaces for racism to fester and to brew. And it's out of that toxic atmosphere that's repeated over and over and over again in our country that we create the atmosphere in which more heinous actions such as the murder of George Floyd or the brutal killing of Ahmad Arbery simply because he was jogging in a neighborhood. We created the atmosphere in which these things happen because we basically have created an atmosphere that says when people, white people, do terrible things, other white people have your back, other white people won't call you up. Again, Joe Fegan talks about how white people will act one way in public, but when they're backstage, as it were, in the company of whites, there's a whole different set of behaviors that come into play. And what we've taught people then is to say, even if you don't do anything negative, if you are not actively anti-racist, if you're not actively challenging people when they say and do terrible things, then you're creating the permissive atmosphere that allows these blatant things to happen. Let's talk about racism within the Catholic Church. 
In 2018, the U.S. bishops published the pastoral document, Open Wide Our Hearts, which was meant to address racism in the U.S. after the events of Charlottesville and a rise in white nationalism. And you've called the document a missed opportunity. What did it say and what didn't it say? I'm going to be very honest because I think that we've reached a time in America where if we don't say uncomfortable truths, then we will never make any progress when, deals with, when we deal with racism. Yes, in my public talks before, I've said that the document was a missed opportunity, but I now have to say that the document then and now is so inadequate as to be virtually useless. And that's a very strong statement, so let me, let me document that. The 2018 statement, as you said, came in response to the events of Charlottesville, when we saw white nationalists being re- nationalism being resurgent in this country in a ways that we've not experienced in decades since the darkest days of the civil rights movement, when we have open white supremacists marching in the streets of an American city with torches saying, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. The document, unfortunately, fell far short in that it never named white nationalism as a social crisis in America. The phrase white privilege does not appear in the document. The phrase Black Lives Matter doesn't appear in the document, despite the fact that this was a has been a major social movement in the United States since the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the killing of Trayvon Martin. The other thing that the document does is when it speaks of racism, it speaks of it in the passive voice. African-Americans were excluded from opportunities, but it never says who did the excluding. Or why? In other words, the document basically reflects a document that was written by white people for the comfort of white people. And in doing so, it illustrates a basic tenet of Catholic engagement with racism, that when the Catholic Church historically has engaged this issue, it's always done so in a way that's calculated to not disturb white people or not to make white people uncomfortable. Even when the document talks about police violence, it does so in a very, to me, bizarre way. It says, we must admit that people of color experience their encounters with police officers to be fearful. But then it goes on to say it condemns violent language directed at police. So they never condemn police abuse of power or police misconduct. And this despite the fact that at that time, the Department of Justice had investigated over 24 police departments in the United States and entered into consent decrees with them over blatant police abuse of power. But that's never reflected in the document. So I think that the document really is woefully inadequate to the challenge of the time. And I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that they never use the Catholic Church's leading scholars 
um, racism and racial injustice in composing the letter. But I think the other major factor is, again, the Catholic Church wants to deal with these issues in ways that won't disturb the comfort of whites. And let me talk a bit more about that, because I think this is a very critical point. Whenever I give workshops on racism, sooner or later, someone will ask a question that goes something like this. Father, how can we talk about this in my parish, in my classroom, at my university, and not make white people uncomfortable? And I challenge them to think about that question. Why is it that the only group in America that is never allowed to feel uncomfortable about race are white people? Doesn't that discount the real discomfort, the real fear, the real terror that people of color have to live with and endure because of racism? And if white comfort sets the limits of conversation, then that means we'll never face the difficult truth. And the difficult truth is that the only reason for the persistence of racism is because white people benefit from it. I challenge them, think of this. If it were up to people of color, racism would have been over and done, resolved a long time ago. So the only reason that racism continues to persist is because white people benefit from it. And if we're always going to have conversations that are predicated upon keeping, preserving white comfort, then we will never get beyond the terrible impasse that we're in. And we will, and we will always doom ourselves to superficial words and to ineffective half measures. That we have to face a very difficult truth that that difficult truth is something that the Catholic Church in America has never summoned the courage or the will to directly address. Part of the reason for such accommodation for white people's comfort, you've said, is that the church sees itself as white for white people. Can you say more about that? Mm, yes. In my book, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church, there's one sentence that goes something like this. What makes the church white and racist is the pervasive belief that European aesthetics, European music, European theology, and European persons, and only these are standard, normative, universal, and truly Catholic. In other words, when we talk about what makes something Catholic, the default is always to the products that reflect a white cultural aesthetic. Everything else is seen as Catholic by exception or Catholic by toleration. And we see it in a, in a number of ways. So let me just sketch out a few. One instance I could point to is when I was, I went to celebrate mass at a suburban parish. Um, this was back in, in Milwaukee. A priest friend of mine had suddenly taken sick and he asked me to take the mass for him. And I showed up at church and I asked the usher to direct me to the sacristy. 
And he looked at me and he wanted to know why I wanted to know. So I explained the situation, thinking that my Roman collar that I was wearing would make it kind of obvious why I would like to know what a sacristy was. And he looked at me and he said, you're a priest. So who sent you? And so I explained the situation again. And then he said, well, next time I hope he sends us a real priest. Now we can get, you know, very upset with him and his, you know, individual insensitivity, bigotry. But he's reflecting something that's very peculiar, that's very ingrained in the church. And that is we expect the person who's going to be the priest to be white. Or another example would be when Pope Benedict in 2000, in, during his pastoral visit, I think it was in 2008, we celebrated Mass at the stadium in Washington, D.C. And the theme of the liturgy was to celebrate the cultural diversity that's present here in the United States. And so the readings were done in a number of languages. The first reading was the classic account of Pentecost for the Spirit descended and enabled the peoples of the world to hear the gospel proclaimed in the world's languages. The prayers of the faithful were offered in a variety of languages. The, the gifts were presented um, to the accompaniment of vigorous gospel and, and Spanish singing. After which, the commentator on EWTN opined, and I remember these words, they're emblazoned in my mind, and I quote, We've just been subjected to an overpreening display of multicultural chatter. And now the Holy Father will begin the sacred part of the Mass. Close quote. And I note the disjunction between multicultural chatter and sacred. That sacred had nothing to do with multicultural. That sacred being Catholic meant speaking in a white idiom, praying in a white idiom, using European hymns. And it's this normative whiteness that's ubiquitous in the Catholic Church, which is its greatest hindrance to dealing effectively with issues of race. Um, People always ask me, you know, well, how many African-American priests are there? And I tell them that, well, currently there are less than 100 of us on active duty in the United States out of tens of thousands. And it's always been that way that Catholic, black, that African-American priests in the United States constitute less than one half of one percent of the total Catholic clergy. And that's not by accident. It's a reflection, a manifestation of this normative whiteness that, to be blunt, it's a form of idolatry. That God can be imaged and God can only manifest God's self through Europeans and European cultural products. And so, yeah, there is a normative whiteness present in the church, but I will also say that it's a form of idolatry. It's the worship of a false god. You've talked about courage as a sort of neglected virtue. Why do Christians need courage? Mm. What happens when we don't have it? 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Courage, I discovered, is perhaps the least studied of the virtues. Uh, for example, we learned in the catechism that the cardinal virtues are prudence, temperance, fortitude, or what we call courage, and justice. And the theological virtues are faith, hope, and charity. We say a lot about every virtue except courage. But Thomas Aquinas taught us that courage is the precondition of all virtue. That without courage, then, we, then we're not able to be prudent. We're not able to be just. Because courage is that virtue that allows us to surmount the fear that comes with the following of the gospel. That if we're going to do anything that is difficult, there is going to be hesitation. There's going to be, there are going to be obstacles. There are going to be opposition. And there's going to be the fear that those obstacles, you know, engender in us. Courage is that virtue that enables us to not be afraid. I mean, it, we still feel afraid, but it's a virtue that enables us to not let fear keep us from doing the right, actualizing the good. Another way of putting it is that moral courage is what translates conviction into action. There are lots of people, and in to put in the conversation we're having today, there are a lot of good white people who know what the right thing to do is, but they don't do it because they're afraid of the disapproval of their friends or they're afraid of the disapproval of their family or they're afraid of the consequences of speaking up and speaking out and being in solidarity and being an ally. There's fear. There's fear of the consequences. And courage is what enables conviction to be translated into action. It isn't that people don't have the conviction, but they don't have the courage to act on those convictions. And so this is the reason why we need courage, especially in the pursuit of racial justice, because there are, there's always going to be a cost to speaking out. I mean, whenever I do an interview like this, my email will fill up with people telling me everything that was wrong about what I said. I can guarantee you that it just happens. Whenever you speak for the cause of justice, whenever we follow Jesus, to be honest, there are going to be consequences. And it's not that we don't know what the right thing is. We are people of conviction, but we don't have courage. We won't translate that conviction into action. What does anger have to do with courage? How does anger play a role in, as you said, moving from conviction to action? That's really good. That's a great question because anger has gotten a pretty nasty reputation in Catholic catechesis, I think most of us of a certain age learned that anger was one of the seven deadly sins and that we were, you know, we were supposed to confess anger and anger was supposed to avoid it. 
But it's very interesting that, again, let's go back to Thomas Aquinas. And I keep talking about Thomas Aquinas because as a Catholic, you you don't get into trouble when you quote St. Thomas. So, <laughs> you don't. You're in safe ground. And I also think that, you know, sometimes if we would go back to Thomas, we'd actually be further ahead. But so let's go back into our tradition. And St. Thomas Aquinas, when he discusses the sin of anger, he says that we can incur the sin of anger in three ways. He says the first is by excess. And so when we're, that's when anger becomes wrathful, when it's, when it becomes rage, when it becomes out of control. He says the second way we can sin in anger is by inappropriate object or a misdirected anger. A trivial example would be that I'm angry at my spouse or significant other and I take it out of my students at school or my employees at work. I, so it's a misdirected anger. But then he says the third way we sin against anger is by deficiency. And he's very clear here. He says we sin by deficiency when we're not angry when we ought to be. And then he gives an example as in the presence of injustice. Because he says, and it's beautiful, he says, anger is the passion that moves the will to justice. This is a great insight because it means that all too often injustice festers in our world because people aren't angry enough to do something about it. To use an, an example, when I see a woman being abused by a man, I should be angry. Because when I'm angry, then I'm going to do something about it. I'm angry, so I'm going to call the police. I'm angry, so I'm going to intervene. I'm angry, so I'm going to tell someone to stop it. But it allows racism to exist in our society, quite frankly, is that we don't have a critical mass of people who are angry. Or to put it another way, more directly, we don't have a critical mass of white Americans who are angry about the situation. Anger is a passion that moves the will to justice. Thomas understood that unless we are angry in the presence and at the reality of injustice, then the status quo will all too often continue. There's a lot of concern, especially among some circles about the violence that is a part of some of the protests. And I want to be very careful here because I think that we have a tendency to overstate the reality and the presence of violence because, frankly, burning buildings and broken windows make for more compelling video and images than people who are peacefully protesting. And so I don't want us to get the, the understanding that violence is what characterizes all of the protests that, we, that we're seeing. And so I want to also be clear that, yes, violence can be an instance of misdirected anger. It can be this kind of 
out-of-control rage that Thomas speaks about. But that's too easy. People always say that there are better, more effective, more ethical ways of people making their point. And I hear that, but I want to press them on that. If there are better, more effective, more ethical ways of people making their point, I wish they would tell me what they are. Because people of color, Black Americans, we have marched, we have demonstrated, we have organized, we have protested, we have voted, we have studied, we have taught, we have begged, we have pleaded, we have cried out, we've wept for years, for decades, even centuries. And still we're being killed while jogging. Or poor Tamir Rice, a 10-year-old kid killed for just sitting in a park. If there are better ways to do this, if there are more effective ways to do this, then don't just homilize about that. Tell me what they are. Because, again, that's a way of avoiding a very difficult truth, and that is that the reason why these measures haven't proved effective up till now is because white Americans, not enough white Americans, don't one substantial change. And when people despair of a political solution to their legitimate grievances, then we cannot be surprised when at times violence appears as an attractive option. Martin Luther King Jr. said that most white Americans are neither unrepentant racist, nor are they forthright racial justice advocates. He said, the majority of white Americans, he says, are suspended between two extremes. They are uneasy with injustice, but they are also unwilling to pay a price to eradicate it. And so for those who would condemn the violence, and I think we all agree that nonviolence is the preferred way of making our grievances known. I challenge them to say, we've done that, and we're still here. It's time now to not simply decry the violence, but to start looking at the legitimate grievances and to summon the will in this country to do it. Father Brian, thank you very much for talking with us. Oh, you're more than welcome. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.